It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz, is normally how we open up this program, but today it's hello and welcome to a different episode of All That's Jazz. It's going to be different because it's not going to be us who are the hosts, but instead we are the guests, and we are going to be answering questions from guests that we have had through the 32 podcasts in our history, not all of which will submit a question, but we do have the tables turned on us now today for this episode, and so some of our previous guests will be asking us the questions. The All That's Jazz team of myself, Mick Garofalo, who is our producer and sound engineer, and Allison Scott, who happens to be our social media queen and public relations manager. So first I will say, hello, Allison. Hello, Mick. Here we go. This is going to be an adventure. We're having an adventure. Hello, Alan. Good to see you again. Uh, it's only been a week, I guess, since I've seen you before. I know. I've, I've seen you somewhere before. In fact, it was uh, in the studio. Speaking of these studios, uh, we should let our listeners know that, first of all, we have a high-tech studio. It's state-of-the-art, in our opinion, and it's where we put this show together each and every week, and it's been a pure delight to do this and share these moments with the guests that we have had as I said at the opening, we've had 32 guests already, and it's been quite an adventure that began back in March, March 18th of this year, and has continued through now. Here we are in November. It's hard so, to believe that it's been uh, that long. It uh, only seems like 12 years. <laughs> it does. <laughs> uh, wouldn't you say, Mick? I mean, this has gotten to be uh, quite the adventure. It's been a, it's been a, a lovely adventure in getting to uh, listen to all the guests and um, folks in the jazz world share their stories with us. And it's very interesting to hear them asking us a few questions. So a lot of the answers that we give are going to be on the fly and be very conversational and we'll have a lot of fun. It's not going to be totally serious. However, uh, some of the questions are really quite, I wouldn't say serious, but they, they are well-intended questions, and our answers may not be that way. <laughs> but we'll find probably out. Probably won't be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, we'll have a little fun with it, but we'll certainly, out of respect, make sure that we have an opportunity to answer the question that maybe they had envisioned in their mind, and then you're going to hear how we see it. And so what we have are uh, 13 guests today, and not actually guests. We have 13 hosts. In the meantime, for the purpose of this episode, we have invited some of our previous guests to submit questions to us. And we gave them two options. One was to submit either a written question, or if they were so inclined to do so, is to record a question and we would play their audio through this episode. And we're going to start our first question with an audio question from one of our previous guests. Her name is Noah Levy. <laughs> Noah's latest release is a collaboration with an incredible Japanese bass player by the name of Shimpei Ogawa. And they have a release out called You, Me, and Cole. Noah, go ahead and take it away. Hi to Alan, Mick, and Allison. Uh, this is Noah Levy, 
And uh, my question to you all three, if possible, is how did you guys meet and what drove you to work as a group to create this podcast? I hope this is not a complicated question to answer in three. Thank you so much. Well, the question isn't exactly complicated, but uh, the answer may be. <laughs> <laughs> True. The, the beauty of it is, uh, Noah, is Allison and I met actually on the radio. I was doing a radio show in Aspen, and we were part of a morning team, and it, it was absolutely a wonderful experience. Allison used to join us on the air and do ski reports, and she became part of the team. It, it, it would not have been a team for this morning show had she not had that opportunity to chime in. Did I get that right, Allison? Pretty much. I mean, I started out with, what, about 30, 45 seconds, and by the time we were finished with all of that, it was five, six minutes or more mm -hmm. <laughs> over the course of a couple of years. So, yes, we that's how we met. We started doing that. We started doing commercials together also. And then besides that, we also formed a friendship and eventually a marriage and a relationship <laughs> with that. And the rest of that is history. 32 plus years of history, yes. You know, it's only fitting that it's 32 years because we've had 32 episodes on All That's Jazz. So oh, that's right. Very this good. This is appropriate. Uh, in the meantime, the third person in this incredible and stellar team is Mick Garofalo, who is not only an incredible photographer, he's a musician, but he's also our producer and our sound engineer. And Mick, how did we meet? Well, I met you obviously through Allison, and Allison and I met uh, in the same in the hospitality business. And um, Allison actually kind of put me on the map as a photographer at the resort where we met. And um, uh, we became friends and colleagues in that way. And then uh, uh, shortly, eventually, I got to meet her fabulous husband with the golden voice. And uh, we became friends as well and eventually had the opportunity to work together on several projects. And as far as putting the podcast together, uh, Noah, what we did was uh, Mick and I uh, took a trip up to Denver one day. And on that round trip uh, in the car, we uh, laid out our plans, our objectives, and shared some of our dreams about doing a project together. Some of them were nightmares <laughs> of those dreams. But nonetheless, born out of that conversation was actually all that's jazz, the podcast. And uh, it was a, a pure pleasure to develop this uh, with Mick and also with Allison. And of course, Allison was a communications and a PR professional for multiple number of years in the hospitality uh, industry and recreational industry, uh, for that matter, as well. And uh, she has a long list of credentials. And we thought, well, why don't we put all of our talents together and create a podcast about the one thing that we all truly share, know, and love, and that's the music called jazz. Allison, do you want to read the next question, which comes from an incredible guitarist? His name is Wayne Wilkinson, and he happens to be a nearby neighbor of us. However, he's not just relegated to just the local area. He's actually an international guitarist and an incredible artist 
at that. Hey, Wayne's question to us was, who was or were the jazz artists you first heard that got your attention to becoming a jazz fan? And I'm going to go ahead and take that one first. Okay. If you guys don't mind. I had a very interesting upbringing, not a usual upbringing. My father was a TV pioneer, first with CBS and then with NBC. My mom was also with Dumont and with NBC. When I was growing up, I spent a lot of my life with musicians. My dad was the producer of the Perry Como show from the 15-minute show on CBS on into NBC before he moved out to the West Coast. Peggy Lee actually babysat me. Uh, Mel Torme and his wife Candy spent lots of time with us. As a matter of fact, I was sorting through some pictures and found pictures of us all out in Connecticut on the beach. And uh, Nat King Cole was a staple around the family. Uh, so that was my first introduction into the music. It was always around me. Uh, I don't think I became much more aware of it, though, because it was part of my upbringing until a little bit later. And I'll explain that later. So, Mick, what about you? Well, I've just been a musician since I was seven years old, and um, one of my first experience with the really playing some jazz was a, a jazz bassist that my dad brought home, as we say, from work, and somebody he had met in the industries that we were in there. And uh, he sat with me a, a few times and uh, really gave me the, the idea of the relationship between a bassist and the drummer. Although I spent most of my years as a rock and blues and R&B and funk drummer, um, I've always really loved the feels of jazz. And I, I credit my prowess, I think, with the idea of, of connecting with the bass player. Um, from this gentleman who took the time uh, with me at that time, I was probably nine or ten uh, years old, and uh, he was, you know, a full adult, and we would just spend, um, you know, hour or two at a time engulfed in these lovely polyrhythms and jazz feels, and uh, just amazing. And um, then he went on about his life, and I went to do other things, but I always retained that that magnificent feel of uh, working directly with the bass player, which obviously is the foundation of any, any music, especially jazz. Well, for me, I think the, uh, the first jazz artist that really got my attention, although I had had a number of inspirations and influences earlier when I was younger, but as a uh, teenager, I uh, got hooked up with Wes Montgomery, the guitarist. And it's only appropriate that Wayne Wilkinson is asking this question because this was one of my first and most important influences. Wes Montgomery had an album out called Down Here on the Ground. Now, it's not exactly pure jazz. It's, it's almost middle of the road. But just the sheer talent of this man playing the guitar was just absolutely amazing. I think I wore the album out. So thank you, Wayne, for the question. It's uh, greatly appreciated. Our next question actually comes from a uh, saxophone player, and his name is Eric Person. Mick, why don't you read the question that Eric sent to us? Eric Person writes, What was the first jazz concert you heard that spun your head around and let you know that you will never be the same after it? You know, Eric, that's a great question. And again, I had a kind of unusual life because after we left New York, I uh, moved to Chicago, and family friend... You know, when you had family that you couldn't, you were too young to call them by their first name, so you called them uncle and aunt. 
Well, George Marienthal and his brother Oscar owned Mr. Kelly's uh, very famous jazz club, nightclub in Chicago, as well as the London House. And we moved there in 1958. First thing that I remember was going to Mr. Kelly's and hearing Ella Fitzgerald record her album live at Kelly's. And that literally was the first time that I had seen that kind of a performance in a small club because we were always with television before that, live television back then. But uh, to see Ella Fitzgerald on that relatively small stage recording that album uh, was life-changing for me. Well, that's actually uh, quite amazing and, and very fortunate for you, Allison, to have had these kinds of experiences to where you were up close and personal. And for me, I kind of had the same thing because, uh, Eric, I will tell you that that uh, first jazz uh, concert that spun my head around uh, for a lot of reasons, not just because of the music, but also the humanity behind musicians and artists. I was invited by Billy Taylor, and at any rate, I was taking a trip to Washington for a public broadcasting conference, and Billy invited me to come to one of the performances that he aired on NPR called Jazz at the Kennedy Center, which was in Washington, D.C. And one of the guests for that particular performance was Jane Bunnett. She is quite the instrumentalist, and I got to see her performance uh, at the Kennedy Center. But during the performance, uh, they actually asked questions. So she would play and Billy would ask questions. And they started talking about how Jane used to travel to Cuba and she would bring instruments uh, to Cuba with her and give those out and share them with kids who were aspiring jazz artists and musicians. What I found compelling for me was the fact that here she was giving back and she was also mentoring young students. Our next question is one that comes from a guitarist who is absolutely fantastic. His name is Michael Bard, and Michael is a part of Trio Caliente, which is a group that performs Brazilian music primarily, but a lot of uh, Latin music as well. And we had them as one of our guests as a part of All That's Jazz. So Michael submitted a question to us that says, what jazz music recording or video inspired you to become a jazz music lover? Also, do any of you play a musical instrument? Well, Michael, I'll go ahead and start this one out. I can't say there's one specific recording uh, for this particular answer, even though I did mention earlier about Wes Montgomery uh, and his recording, but the experience that I had at KDNK Public Radio in the Aspen area really gave me that opportunity to fall even more in love with uh, the music jazz because I was given the opportunity to do an all-jazz show for the first time in my life as an on-air radio host, and it deepened my passion for this music, and it gave me more of a chance to learn about the music, the artists, uh, the people that create it, and the story behind everybody, and, and I think that's... Uh, probably what inspired me to become a lover of jazz music forever. 
So but Mickey, Mickey, Mick, you're quite that's right. Uh, prolific. Uh, yeah, I've been a, a drummer since I was seven years old and um, never looked back. I play in all my life, still do, and um, I have my kit in the basement and um, played live uh, pretty much most all of my life. And uh, I do some recording now and I've recorded some uh, tracks for different artists and uh, I also play keyboards. Um, about halfway through my life, I started playing on an old, old, old out-of-tune piano. Um, to which my family would leave me behind when they went shopping into town. Um, can't remember if it was because they didn't like the sound of the piano or they didn't like me. But um, one way or the other, I really fell in love with the, the keyboard, but uh, always kept my roots with the drums. And uh, it's, it's been a very um, lovely, amazing part of my life. We hope uh, that answers uh, the question for you, Michael, and thank you for your submission. Our next one uh, we, is a very lovely young lady who's going to step forward to the microphone and deliver the question. And she is the one, the only vocalist, Grammy-nominated Catherine Russell. And she has a question uh, for us uh, that we could share with all of you. Hi, Ellen. This is Catherine Russell. Did you listen to jazz as a child? And uh, what was the first jazz album that you remember listening to? Well, Catherine, uh, that's a great question, and thank you for your submission. Uh, I will tell you that, yes, as a child, I did have uh, the opportunity to listen to jazz. Uh, as for the first album uh, that made me fall in love with the music, uh, it was actually, uh, as I had stated earlier in this episode, uh, with a uh, West Montgomery album that I had the opportunity to own and play over and over and over again. But there were other jazz albums that were an influence. First of all, as a child, as to the types of music that we would listen to in the house, uh, there was, uh, because I have uh, a Polish heritage in my family, we listened to polkas a lot, but my parents actually loved jazz. And one particular artist that my father loved was George Shearing. And I remember each and every time we would uh, be in the car and driving around the area, he would put the radio on, and if a George Shearing tune came on, it would be, shh, quiet, George is playing. So we had to listen in absolute silence. But you know what? It, it, it was, as a kid, it was like, oh, what the heck, you know? Uh, but deep down inside, subliminally, what was happening is I, I was learning to appreciate the music that George was playing. And he is an incredible pianist. So Catherine, thank you again for your question. Our next question comes from another guitarist, Simone Gubbiati, who is an Italian guitarist. And uh, Allison, why don't you read us uh, Simone's question? Simone asked us, can you find a reason for not doing the podcast? <laughs> Well, I'll take a crack at that first, and, and that is that I retired uh, from doing public relations and communications about two years ago, and uh, I think that it, this started out to be a lot of a lot of fun. It still is a lot of fun, but uh, we, when we first started talking about it, Alan said, gee, we can do one of these every day. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sure. If I had known how much work this was going to be, this is another full-time job. I mean, we do one of these once a week. 
And by the time you gentlemen have recorded it, by the time I get it to start promoting it, and uh, we're, we're looking at 20, 30 hours a week to, to do this right. So uh, that would be my selfish reason for not wanting to do it. But I have to tell you, though, in this time of COVID, uh, I had a volunteer job that I really did love. And I went to twice a week. But of course, like everything else, that stopped. Uh, and it doesn't look, unfortunately, like it's going to come back again. So I really threw myself into doing this and to doing the podcast. And now it would be hard to think about life without it, actually. What about you, Mick? Uh, can you find a reason for not doing this podcast? Honestly, I, I love it. And um, no reason not to. It, it indeed is a lot of work. I mean, Allison spends the time she spends, um, the time you spend. I probably spend um, a good six to eight hours involved in it. And um, again, the, the during the COVID time, we're, we're looking for things to do to, to stay busy and um, what better thing to do than to to work on recording and and uh, editing and producing something as fantastic as this? It's it's amazing. So um, my answer would be no. I don't think I could find a reason not to do this. Actually, it's, it's a labor of love. And Simone, I will tell you, I'll share Mick's answer as well. And the answer, in a word, is no. I would never find a reason for not doing the podcast. Our next one comes in the form of a written question from Charles McPherson. Charles is an incredible saxophonist. He's a composer and arranger, and uh, he comes from a very, very multi-talented family. His daughter is a principal in the San Diego Ballet, that's Camille, and his wife, Lynn, happens to be his manager and promoter for the business that they are in, that business being jazz. And uh, Charles has a new release out called Jazz Dance Suites, and it's, it's truly one of the most beautiful recordings uh, that I've heard in quite some time. And Charles sends us a question saying, what is the common denominator that's compelling about people like me that sparks your interest? So let me take that one. Uh, to me, uh, the most compelling and common denominator uh, about people like you, Charles, is your passion to the music, your commitment to excellence. And as a result, uh, I, I think uh, even though you are one of the elder statesmen of the world of jazz, it seems like you're staying young at heart and not aging. I mean, you, you are at an age where most people would give it up uh, no matter what their profession, but you still do it and do it purely, wonderfully, and beautifully. Uh, and it, it's absolutely amazing. You have a good time with your fellow musicians. Uh, you connect to each other and also with the audience whenever you perform. And then this connection with your wife and your daughter in this collaboration to make this recording called Jazz Dance Suites has been absolutely amazing. Our next question comes from a guy that he, he's all about music. And, and he is uh, not only a musician and an artist in his own right, but he's also a composer and arranger. 
and he works with a number of people in the world of jazz, and his name is Oscar Hernandez. Let's have you step in, step up to the mic, and fire away with your question. Hi, Alan. This is Oscar Hernandez, leader of the Spanish Harlem Orchestra. I want to thank you for all the support. And my question to you is, what is the one thing in an artist's music that you find most appealing? Thank you. You're welcome. And Oscar, that's a great question. And it's almost one that's hard to answer. But for me, it came right up to the top. Uh, And I will tell you, Oscar, that the thing that I find most appealing is when it's your composition or arrangement, because you own it, you've written it, or you put your name on it, so to speak, and perform it or have people within your orchestra or people that you collaborate with, uh, and they make this music happen because of your influence on it, uh, especially uh, when you compose it and arrange it, as I had said. It's truly fantastic. So, Allison, I I understand you have some thoughts on that particular question uh, from Oscar. I do. You know, we have had vocalists, we've had wonderful musicians and technical artists, but I think that the one thing that they have in common, and Oscar, I think that the one thing that I love about Spanish Harlem Orchestra uh, is that it touches your soul. If it gets down into your soul, you know it right away. And that's the thing that you're going to listen to over and over and over again. Uh, If it makes me feel energy in every fiber of my body, whether it's slow or whether it is fast. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, it is something that really touches me, and that's what is attractive to me. So our next question comes uh, by way of Lenora Zenzeli-Helm. Lenora writes to us uh, a question that was one of those thought-provoking questions, and she says, what is the one thing you wish musicians, instrumentalists, and singers would get Something that you say to yourself, why don't they just understand that they should never do blank? And I'm going to start with you, Allison. Oh, I've got a couple. Uh, The first thing that drives me up a wall is, I'm talking about live performances now, is when a musician comes on and totally ignores the audience. Uh, They come on, they play for themselves, they don't look at the audience, they don't interact with the audience. They rarely, on occasion, will interact with people that are playing with them. Or it becomes like an inside party, where it's just the two or the three or the four or, or however many on the stage, and the audience becomes superfluous. That drives me nuts. Uh, Because I feel that, that, particularly with jazz, there needs to be some interaction Uh, because we're there listening. We're hopefully enjoying. But I want to flip that question around a little bit, too, and take a look at us as audience in those circumstances, Uh, because I think that the audience owes it to the artist to pay attention uh, and really listen. Uh, I know it's difficult in small clubs. I was raised partly in small clubs, and I get that, especially late night after more than a few cocktails. There Mm -hmm. tends to be a lot of chatter. But Alan, you and I had a situation where we were at a concert 
uh, by a very famous person and his orchestra. And the ladies behind us, remember, would not shut up. Exactly. I mean, to the point where we almost got in a fight with them. And at the intermission, we had to move seats because they just, they were so rude. And it was so unnecessary. They were bothering everybody around them. So audiences have a responsibility to the artists the same way that artists have a responsibility to the audience. I don't know, Mick, if you share that uh, same uh, experience or opinion. Indeed. And uh, my quick reference is, um, well, was a, a Grammy show. Um, and uh, it's a different world, but it was uh, Rod Stewart was singing. Uh, a new song he had out was very soft at the end. And he kept looking out at the audience, and you can hear this. This is on TV. You can hear this chatter in the audience. And he finally, he said, sang the last lovely, oh, and he said, okay, I'm done now. Wow. Like, you know, in case you guys didn't notice, I was singing a song here. And this was on live TV at the Grammys. Uh, so, yes, indeed. Um, you know, it's, it's let's, let's appreciate the artist's performance and you know, there's plenty of time to talk or, you know, step outside or to the lounge and have your conversations. But uh, indeed, be respectful to the artists, always. You know, in the, uh, I guess, the, the goals of our podcast, we try to bring in everything that is all about jazz. Uh, and we talk about artists, we talk about uh, venues, uh, we talk about... Uh, people that uh, create a variety of different things that all contribute to the world of jazz. And one of our categories is rising stars. And one of our very first rising stars was vocalist Hannah Byardi. And she sends us a question by way of audio, and we're going to give her that opportunity now to deliver her question. This question is for Alan. What types of questions have led to the most compelling or unexpected conversations? Well, I, I will tell you, uh, Hannah, that, uh, by the way, thanks, uh, wonderful question. Uh, one of the most compelling or unexpected elements of a conversation have come about by asking questions about other things besides music, uh, maybe even somewhat of a personal nature. And if you know and learn about some of the people that you're interviewing or talking with, uh, maybe it gives you that opportunity to bring that up. And sometimes uh, you, you dig into stories uh, that certain artists have fallen on tough times, or maybe uh, they were involved in a tragic car accident and almost lost the ability to be able to perform their music. Uh, and those uh, things were not only uh, compelling, but also unexpected in terms of the conversation that we had about uh, some of the uh, guests here on this podcast. And I, I think, Mick, you would agree, too. That, you know, we, we had a, a, an episode with Shunzo Ono, who is an, a marvelous trumpeter, but he had a, a rather tragic car accident and had his mouth and teeth just seriously injured. And it, it, the doctor was essentially saying, you know, you might as well hang it up. You ain't going to be playing anymore. But he found a spirit and a willingness to say, I'm going to prove you wrong. And he did. Indeed. Um, that was a, a fascinating 
um, very in-depth. Again, a magnificent invitation into someone's personal life and how they conquered. A lot of people just hear the music and they understand uh, uh, there was something, but to hear the, a person actually share his story with us was, is a fascinating thing. Well, sometimes you, you really don't intend to go there, but uh, the artist takes it there or your guest takes it there and uh, you <laughs> go along for the ride. Moving on to our next question. This comes from somebody in the world of jazz that makes it happen for a lot of artists because without somebody in this position with strong talents and abilities, a lot of times it's hard to get your uh, career off the ground. So you need a good publicist or PR manager. Uh, and I know that very well because I live with one. But one of the, uh, the tops in the business is a lady by the name of Lydia Liebman. Hey, Alan. Lydia Liebman here, publicist and promoter. I love being on your show a couple months ago. So I'm really excited to ask you a question this time. So, Alan, how do you do it when you are interviewing an artist and they're just not being forthcoming at all? They're being a little awkward. Maybe they're just like not giving you good answers at all. And you know that you need something for the interview, but you're just not getting it. How do you push through that? And do you have any tips for anyone who might be listening who is a budding DJ themselves and um, might be in that position? Thanks for everything you do, Alan. You know, I, I, I will tell you, Lydia, that the, the most important thing to doing an interview with somebody so that you can avoid these awkward moments or not giving you the answers you want is it's all about doing homework, homework, homework. It's so important. Uh, do all of your research. In this day and age, there's no reason whatsoever that you can't find out about somebody that you're about to have a conversation with and find out little facts. But more importantly, find out those morsels of facts that are important to the guest and ask those questions. And then all of a sudden they come alive and, oh, wow, yeah, you're right. I forgot all about that experience. That happened back in uh, 2003 when I was doing this gig and such and such uh, showed up and we jammed on the stage together. So little things like that, if you know who you're talking to and you know what makes that person tick, it does help. Another thing that I think is extremely key in any conversation or interview is to listen in all caps. I don't even do a list of questions. You know, I've had guests say, well, send me a list of your questions. I can't because I don't do them. I just go with the flow of the conversation when I speak to somebody and I listen because oftentimes, you know, I may go through the list of questions in my mind and, you know, I'm thinking, well, and now question four and then question five. In the meantime, they drop a bomb on you in the middle of the previous answer and you don't pick up on it. And, and, and I think that's wrong. You, you need to listen to what the guest is saying to you. And oftentimes it leads to uh, just wonderful experiences. And then another thing that I think is uh, very important is don't ask the same old questions. Try to find a, either a different way to say it or a different uh, thing about that uh, particular guest. And then lastly, use some humor. Have some fun. Lighten up. And... Uh, all of the guests, uh, I would say, uh, 
through all 32 experiences that we've had have responded to humor. Even to the question that I asked you, Lydia, at the beginning of your episode, which you didn't expect and came right out of left field. But that set the tone and the pace for where we took it. Would you not agree, Mick? That was that was fun. I would wholeheartedly agree. In fact, we have a little fun thing we do in the studio. Um, we have an imaginary a bell, like a service bell you ring when you walk into the front desk of a hotel. You ring a little ding bell. And whenever someone says, that's a great question, which every single episode we've had that at least one time and often many times. In fact, I look at Alan across the way. Um, I'm in the control booth and he's in Studio B. And I'll look over and give him a big thumbs up and he's grinning, I'm grinning because before they even say great question, I, I go, wow, that was a great question. And uh, I'm fascinated on the, uh, uh, the in-depth research that Alan does uh, for these um, interviews. And it just shows that he truly has a passion uh, to learn about these artists, and they pick up on that. Add, add a little bit of things that I call an icebreaker at the beginning uh, of the conversation, and that happens to uh, be an example of our next guest uh, that uh, is going to ask us a question, and his name is Richard Barada. He's a drummer uh, and a uh, former executive movie producer, who went back to his primary love in life, and that was to be involved in jazz music. And uh, during the conversation that I had with Richard, the very first question I said was, so Richard, uh, you know, he, here he is thinking, well, you know, what kind of question is he going to get? And uh, I, I did this big buildup for him, and I said, so Richard, tell me about going down a raging Zambezi River in a rubber raft sideways. And there was this pause and then a laugh like, oh, my gosh, you know, that's what that's what not only did it break the ice, but it led into some wonderful other questions uh, later on. And a great story that he told about being in Africa and going down the Zambezi River. So, you know, it, it's little things like that that make a difference. And Richard has some questions for us. He actually has two. Good day, Alan, Mick and Allison. Hope you're all doing well. This is Richard Barada from the East Coast, and uh, I have two questions, although you can use one, or you can use both, or you can use neither. I'll leave it up to you. So, first question. This is for Alan. Uh, Alan, you've obviously spent many, many productive and successful years in the broadcast business, is your time spent conducting the current podcasts more satisfying and liberating than your on-air hosting and spinning for the radio station? The second question is for, I guess, for Alan and Mick, specific to the podcast. Have you ever been caught totally off guard or forced to pause with a response from or in dialogue with one of your guests? Good luck. Well, Richard... Let's uh, start with your first question, and that is, uh, you. first of all, I thank you for acknowledging my productive and successful years in the broadcast business. Uh, I appreciate that. So my time spent conducting this current podcast, is it more satisfying and liberating than being on the air uh, doing uh, my radio show? Well, uh, as far as more satisfying, not really. 
Uh, I wouldn't say that it's more satisfying. It's certainly a, an equal experience. Uh, I truly love both, and I'm passionately committed to doing both. I hope that answers that part of the question for you. And then as far as liberating, uh, yes, the podcast is truly more liberating. And, and the reason for that is simply because when you're on the radio, you're dealing with a very strict time element. You're dealing with format and you have to follow someone else's direction or directives. Uh, but uh, I, I love both, Richard. I absolutely love both. I, I, I don't know what it would be like to not have both of those in my life. Hi, Richard. Thanks so much for your question. And um, really enjoyed chatting with you during our interview, Drummer to Drummer. Nothing quite like that. So I'm drawing on an experience of one of our interviews with Alonzo Demetrius. And uh, he had flown to New York to uh, rehearse for his up-and-coming shows and uh, band uh, rehearsals. And uh, where he was uh, rehearsing at, there wasn't a quiet space for him to do the interview. So he went out to the parking lot and sat in his car and had propped his phone up onto his speedometer and uh, had created a, a nice little acoustically sound space to do a nice interview. And we're having this interview. And all of a sudden, there's a jostling of the, of the phone, kind of moves around a little bit, and some noise and some ruckus. And he says, oh, um, I've got to go. I'll get right back to you. So he suddenly turns off his phone, and Alan and I are in the studio for about 10, 10 12 minutes and wondering if he's going to come back uh, on, the, on the Zoom interview. And um, we had paused our recording. And then um, all of a sudden, the, uh, the light blinks on and it says um, Alonzo is, is back waiting in the Zoom waiting room. And we click the button and he comes back on and he says, oh, sorry about that. A lady just ran into my car uh, during the interview and uh, I had to get out and exchange insurance information with her. And uh, now we're back in the interview. And about 10 seconds later, a siren comes by. So very authentic uh, environment out there. Um, in the world, and, and we're really uh, very pleased with his um, tenaciousness of getting is getting through the interview. And say, hang on a second, somebody just ran into me in the car, exchanged information, and back in the interview again. And we concluded a very, very lovely interview, which you all have heard. Well, it was funny because it's like you said, Mick, the guy was gone. And we thought, oh, geez, 10 minutes go by, 11 minutes go by, 12 minutes, like, Where's Alonzo? And then he jumps back in the car and resumes the interview. We thought he had left. Uh, we are in the uh, final stages of our conversation here this afternoon. And so our final question comes uh, from a very inspiring young man who is a trumpeter. He's a composer, an arranger, and has assembled an incredible orchestra out of Canada to produce a recording called uh, Night Devoid of Stars, and his name is Daniel Herzog. And that was a great interview. We, we really enjoyed the time with him, and, and this recording is marvelous. Uh, and he has a question for us uh, that I think will uh, bring us full circle to this Turning the Tables episode. Hi there, this is Daniel Herzog from Vancouver, British Columbia. Here's my question, perhaps a bit of an obvious one. If you could go back to do a podcast at any point in time in jazz history, who would be your dream guest? A sit-down with Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, Sun Ra, Ornette? 
I'm very curious, who would be the All That Is Jazz dream guest? All of them today have been great questions, but this is a great question. Uh, and it is one that is somewhat hard to answer because the first time I heard your question, I, I thought, well, you know, and then I played it a second time and all of a sudden it was like, that's easy. Miles Davis. You know, talk about all the elements that we were incorporating into this uh, conversation today for this episode about what makes us tick and how we deal with challenges and good times and bad times and experiences that we've had. I, I think it would be a real challenge, first of all, to try to get Miles Davis to talk for 20, 30 minutes. Uh, but what a, I'm almost speechless. I, he, he's such an incredible artist that uh, there, there is a depth to him. There's a sadness to him. There is a, a nature to him that is amazing. Daniel, I have one for you that from all the people that I, I heard and met, there's one that I would love to have had on All That's Jazz, and that's Sarah Vaughan. Over and over and over again, we heard from artists, musicians that have been on the show, how much Sarah Vaughan influenced them. Everywhere from books to Scott Diano even saying in a critique that she had the most wondrous voice of the 20th century. Growing up, I had her albums. I heard her. I just missed her by about six months when I moved to Chicago when I was 10. Uh, she had played at Mr. Kelly's right before uh, Ella Fitzgerald had done her recording. And, of course, actually opened for Ella Fitzgerald at the Apollo on Amateur Night uh, back in the 40s. So Sarah Vaughan is somebody that I would have loved to have heard an interview with. Uh, and, and that's part of the fun of this podcast, All That's Jazz, that makes it interesting and compelling for us to want to do it each and every week for you, the listener. It's our pleasure to have had all of you who have been our guests to turn the tables today and ask us the questions. We appreciate and love all of you, and thank you for your thought-provoking and wonderful questions. This has been time well spent. Indeed. Um, I'd like to say to all of you folks who sent in questions, our favorite thing to hear, those were great questions. And Allison? From my standpoint, thank you for giving me the proper fodder to be able to promote them through social media platforms. It's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to doing even more of that as, as we move forward. And I cannot thank both of you enough for being part of uh, the All That's Jazz team. Uh, without you as a team, none of this would have happened and we wouldn't have had the success and the fun that we've had in doing All That's Jazz. Thank you for listening today and being a part of this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with the All That's Jazz team. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the app you used to listen to us. We have new podcasts every Wednesday. You may subscribe for free. We are now heard on all top platforms, as well as Facebook and our website, allthatsjazz.net.